Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, our text this morning begins in verse 1 and extends to verse 21. It's been a few weeks since we've been in John's Gospel. About three weeks ago, something like that, we looked at John chapter 5, and then we had missions conference, and then we had a kind of a one-off sermon on 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 2, 5, and then last week Parker did a fabulous job with Psalm 23, but we come back this morning to John 6, and after that long extended block of teaching from Jesus at the end of John 5, the, the longest single uninterrupted block of teaching that Jesus has in the entirety of John's gospel, we come to the most familiar miracle in all of the Gospels. This is one of the very few miracles that shows up not just in John, but in the so-called synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which signals that this, this feeding of the 5,000, this miracle, was, was vitally important to the disciples' understanding of what Jesus had come to do. Of course, it fits in, I think, with John's purpose, doesn't it? I've mentioned this as we've gone through this Gospel, that But John tells us at the end of the gospel that his purpose for writing these things is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. And so this scene, which which shows up here, is is meant to be viewed with with that purpose in mind. How does John 6 and this feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, how how does this scene point us to Jesus? How does it point us to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God? How, might, how does it point us to faith in him that we might have eternal life? Life now, but abundant life in the age to come. In order to see that how this happens, how this passage works with John's purpose, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come to you as, as your people this day, desiring to hear the word of the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. Come and open our eyes of faith this morning, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. Open our hearts, Lord, that we might rest in you yet again and receive all of the benefits of Christ and Christ himself. Lord, grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, "'Where are we to buy bread?' so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. 
And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I, I, I don't know about you, but I love the first question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. Maybe you're not aware of the Heidelberg Catechism or you haven't been at IPC since we've used the Heidelberg Catechism as part of our statements of faith. That, that catechism comes from the mid-16th century. It was written in, in 1563. It was actually a commissioned work. Uh, a new ruler had come to rule a section of Germany called the Palatinate, and that ruler was uh, a man named Frederick III. Frederick III was committed to the Reformed faith, like we believe, but he was ruling a land that was actually Lutheran. And so in order to forge a consensus uh, around biblical and doctrinal truth, he commissioned two men, uh, Zachary Ursinus and Caspar Livianus, to write a new catechism that would be used in his land, uh, the capital of which was Heidelberg. And so we have the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, many love that catechism. I love it. But especially I love it because of that first question and answer. What's my only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a great answer because, because ultimately our only comfort in this life when, when the demands of life come, and the demands of the law come, is that I don't belong to myself. I, I in fact, belong to another. I belong to Jesus, uh, body and soul. To, Jesus cares for my body, yes, but he cares for the, the immaterial part of me, the real me, if you will, that's so much tied up with my body, the self. Jesus cares for that. He's, he's purchased all of me by his blood, but, but not just in life, also in death. So that when I come to my dying day and stand before the judgment seat of Christ and prepare to cross the Jordan River and enter into the presence of God, my only comfort on that day is that I don't belong to myself. I belong to another. I belong to Jesus. See, if, if our hope in life and in death is that we are in fact our own, if we look to our own resources, our own abilities, our own selves in, in, for this life or the life to come, what happens to us? Well, life will crush us, and death will destroy us. 
Oh, friends, it's, it's, only, it's in the times of difficulty and disaster and, and sadness and suffering. And, and when we come to our dying day, the only way that we can have hope and comfort in that time, it comes from a word of promise from Jesus himself that we belong to him. And, and he'll say, it's I. I am here. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. His perfect love casts out our fear. Why? Because he loved us first. And he's with us. He says to us, it is I. Sadly, we don't always hear Jesus' word, do we? We don't always hear Jesus' word in those times of difficulty and struggle and suffering in this life. We, we don't always hear Jesus' word as, as we fearfully approach our dying a day. And that's why Jesus brings us into situations where we feel life's demands and we feel the law's demands and we are able to experience how utterly unable, insufficient, inadequate we really are. I mean, that's really what's going on here in John chapter 6, isn't it? Here in this passage, we see how Jesus has brought the disciples into a situation, into a test that demonstrates their inability. Now, the disciples have, have somehow made it to the far side of Galilee. That's what verse 1 tells you. Jesus and his disciples have made it to the far side of Galilee. In John chapter 5, they're in Jerusalem. It's a reminder that John doesn't exactly arrange his material chronologically, but theologically. And so the verse 1 tells you they're on the far side of the, of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, John tells his Roman readers that, that it's been renamed, or they would know it as the Sea of Tiberias. And, and they've gone with Jesus in order to be taught. Verse 3 tells you that, that Jesus went up on the mountain. And there he sat down with his disciples. It reminds you of the Sermon on the Mount, does it? From Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus sits down to teach. Or Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, he takes his disciples to this place and he sits down to teach. So it is here. In verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples, presumably to teach them. But just as Jesus is about to teach them, he lifts up his eyes and what does he see? He sees a crowd, a large crowd coming toward him. Verse 2 tells you that they are coming because they've seen the signs that Jesus was doing. The way that he had healed the sick. And, and so as Jesus sees the crowds coming to him, he makes a demand of his disciples. You see it in verse 5. Verse 5 says, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to, Philippa, to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. Verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. John clues us in. This is a test. Jesus is demanding something of these disciples, and he's demanding that they meet the situation that's before them with their own resources. And in doing so, Jesus is testing them. He's trying them so that they might be brought into a situation where they see how inadequate their resources actually are. How do they respond? How do they respond when Jesus makes the demand that they might feed this large crowd that's coming toward them? Well, Philip responds by looking toward financial resources. You see it in verse 7? Uh, Philip answered him, 
200 denarii of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 200 denarii, that, that represents about eight months worth of work. And Philip tells Jesus that if they were to somehow pull their money together in order to amass about eight months' worth of wages, it wouldn't be enough to, to satisfy the large crowd. The crowd's too large, the resources are too inadequate, too insufficient. It cannot meet the demand. Andrew, he responds by looking toward relational resources. Do you see what he does? Look at verse 8, one of his disciples Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Presumably, Andrew networks within the crowds, and he finds this child who has some food, five barley loaves, two dried fish, but but that's the best he could do. He, He worked his relational networks, went to his relational resources, and he, and he finds out that they are obviously inadequate to meet the demand. And so, so Philip looks at his money, and, and Andrew looks at his networking, but in a time of stress and difficulty where life's demands are coming against them, when the law's demands coming against them, they, they come to see how inadequate and insufficient they actually are. And, and that's exactly what Jesus wanted them and and wants us to see. Because here's the thing. Friends, Jesus brings us over and over and over again into situations where the demands of life and the demands of the law show us how inadequate our resources are. I mean, how have you experienced this? You've experienced this reality, haven't you? I mean, when the demands of life show you how small and how unable and how weak and foolish you really are, I mean, when Sarah was diagnosed with cancer at the end of August, the beginning of September, that, that was my overwhelming feeling. I, I can see myself in my mind's eye right now, standing in our, in our bathroom by the shower, just, just crying out to God, I am a small man. God, you can crush me. You could destroy me. This could destroy me. You know what that feels like, don't you? You've experienced that. Perhaps it's a wayward child, and, and now they're an adult, and, and they want nothing to do with your Jesus, and you keep trying to figure out ways in which you, tr- you want to leverage your relational network and bring people into their lives to point them to Christ, or, or perhaps send them away to a conference, and they want nothing to do with you because your resources cannot meet the challenge before you. Or perhaps it's in the workplace and you've lost your job and, and you've utilized all of your finances and now you're, you're trying to work your networks and your relationships and, and people say, oh, I'm, I'm going to help you, and then they never call. Or, or they say, oh, I've got something for you, but it's not going to work. And, and you've come to the end of yourself because the resources cannot help you meet the demands of life. You realize how small and how weak and unable you actually are. Likewise, with the demands of the law, not not just God's law, but the law that that others bring against us, their demand of perfection. Perhaps it's your mother's voice that's been in your head all your life, telling you, you don't match up, you don't meet the standard. 
Even though you've, you've worked hard and you've got a wonderful home and you've, your kids are following Jesus, yet you, you have this sneaking suspicion because your mother's voice is in your head demanding that you meet the standard of perfection and you know you can't meet up, can't match it. You feel how inadequate you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have or who you know. Or perhaps it's your own heart to say. And the voice in your heart keeps driving you and driving you because, because you're, you're, it's trying to force you to meet this standard of, of, of demand and law and perfection. And you cannot meet this standard you've internalized. doesn't matter how much money you have, who you know, how you're able to network, how you've advanced in your career. You cannot meet the demands of the law. These things are in, have come into your life in order to demonstrate through these trials and tests that your money, your relationships, your smarts, your gifts, they're utterly insufficient, utterly inadequate for rescuing you. You cannot rescue you, and you really can't rescue others at the end of the day. God wants you to come to this place where you're at the end of yourself and the end of your abilities and, and the end of your sufficiency so that your hands might be actually open so that you can receive the gifts that he gives in his grace. It's hard to receive a gift, isn't it? Especially when we live under the illusion of our ability, the illusion of our own resources. We want to fend for ourselves. We want to provide. We want to work. We want to do and truth be told, we want to do all of this because we don't really want to be on, in debt to another. We, we don't want to be dependent on someone else. We want to stand on our own two feet. We want to be self-sufficient. We, we want to even be justified, declared in the right, with a measure of glory to gain for ourselves. I did it. I made this. I provided for this. Or even for those of us who've made it past, I've survived this. Look at what I, I beat it. But here in this situation in John chapter 6, the, the disciples' inability is clear. They have no resources that will come close to meeting the demand of the hour. And, and so what does Jesus do? He gives. He gives us what we need. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also the fish as much as they wanted. Now this language here, as Jesus gives us what we need, it echoes down in John's gospel, echoes down through Christian history, to connect us to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it. Uh, excuse me, Jesus takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he distributes it to be eaten. But, but we shouldn't just hear the echoes going forward. We, we need to hear the echoes going backwards into the Old Testament. And there's two echoes in particular that help us make sense of, of why Jesus is giving these gifts and how this fulfills Holy Scripture. One echo back to the past is an echo back to Moses. Of course, we're prepared here in John's Gospel for this. At the end of John chapter 5, Jesus says, if, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And then later in John chapter 6, we'll see it next time, uh, he, he explicitly invokes Moses and manna. 
And so we're meant to see here this connection that, that just as God in his grace gave the gift of manna to God's people through his mediator Moses, so, so now God is giving his gift of grace, of food that will satisfy us through the mediator Jesus. But there's a second echo back to the Old Testament, one that's, that's likely less familiar. Uh, in, in 2 Kings chapter 4, the prophet Elisha uh, there's a story there in John, in, excuse me, in 2 Kings 4, verses 42 to 44, in which a man comes with 20 loaves of bread. And Elisha the prophet asks him to give the bread to the young prophets, about a hundred of them in number. And the man protests that the loaves are inadequate to feed such a crowd. And, and Elisha then repeats it. He says, give the loaves to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And it happens just as Elisha said. You see, that's another echo. So that both Moses and Elisha, law and prophets, find their fulfillment ultimately here in what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than the giver of the law. And he's greater than the prophet Elisha. No, he is the one who, who gives the gift of grace to his people, who feeds his own people. He meets his own demand in a way that displays his grace. And he's the one who gives. But, but all that's required of the people, all that's required for you and me to receive his gift of grace, if he's the one who gives, we receive. That's what the people did, isn't it? Look at verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the fine barley loaves left by those who were eaten. And so Jesus gives this gift, the bread and the meat from heaven, as the five loaves and two fish are extended to feed over 5,000 men and presumably an extended number of women and children. But for the disciples and for the crowds, they're utterly passive in all of this. I mean, they, they simply receive the gift. They simply take and eat. They, they, didn't, they didn't use their own resources. They didn't pay for it. They didn't work for it. They didn't use their own abilities. They didn't figure out how to leverage their relational networks or their money to feed all of these people. No, they're utterly reliant on another. They're utterly reliant on Jesus himself. And what do they find? Well, they find that the gift they receive is abundant. It's more than enough. It fills 12 baskets full of, of leftovers. Friends, this is lavish, prodigal grace that Jesus offers to them. And it is the same lavish, prodigal grace that Jesus offers to us. Because when the demands of life come and, and the demands of the law come and they, and they de demonstrate our utter inability and inadequacy to save ourselves, to rescue ourselves, to deliver ourselves, what do we need? We need Jesus. We need his gift. We need his grace. We need his word of promise, assuring us that he will rescue us, that he will save us, that he will deliver us, that he will raise us from the dead. We need his word of absolution over and over and over again, coming to us when we sin, I forgive you. And how does this external word of promise how does this external word of forgiveness, how does it come to meet our need? 
How does it enter our hearts and lives in such a way that it changes us and transforms us? We receive it. That's it. We receive it. We're utterly passive, utterly receptive. Our catechism says we rest upon and we receive Jesus. We receive his word. We receive his grace. We receive his gift. We don't trophy our money, our relationships. We don't trophy our good works, our abilities. We don't have anything in our hands. We have empty hands so that when he gives his gift of grace, we simply receive it. It's what the hymn writer trying to teach us. Not the labors of my hands can satisfy or can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. See? Our hands are empty. We confess our utter inability, our utter inadequacy. We're in a passive position, a receptive position. All we can do is receive his gift of grace. Well, let's be honest. That undoes us. It absolutely undoes us to simply be in a passive position of receiving the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we begin to wonder, how in the world can we entrust ourselves to another? How, How can we simply assign our own doing when the demands of life and the demands of the law are shouting at us to comply? How can we rest and receive Jesus' word of promise and so receive Jesus himself? How can we risk ourselves in that way, especially on someone we've never seen? All we have is his word and his word of promise. How do we risk ourselves? Well, we can do so because Jesus is more than the prophet and he's more than the king. He is the God who dispels and soothes our fears. It's important for us to recognize that verses 16 and 21 aren't a separate scene. They're actually the vital inclusion and conclusion of the previous scene. That The crowds that see that Jesus is a prophet and say they say in verse 14, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And so as a result, because they think this is the prophet that Moses has promised, they want to seize him and make him king by force. And Jesus escapes from them, and he, and he goes to the top of the mountain where they won't follow him. It doesn't appear that the disciples follow Jesus, does it? They're down at the bottom of the mountain, and perhaps they're, they're sending the crowds away, or perhaps they're finally getting a chance to eat the, the leftovers in the 12 baskets. But finally, it's the end of the day, and it's becoming night, and dark is settling over the Sea of Galilee. They need to get moving if they're going to get back to Capernaum. They can't wait for Jesus any longer. And so they get into the boat and they start pulling for the other side. Now, the Sea of Galilee has widest point. It's about eight miles across. It's likely that the place where they're crossing is about five miles, maybe six. 
And so they're about a little over halfway. And at that point, a storm starts brewing up. The wind starts to blow. The surf becomes rough. They're pulling with all their might. They're making no progress. Things are starting to look dicey and dangerous. Now get it, they're in the same place they were at before. Before, Jesus made a demand that they didn't have the resources to fulfill. And they're right back in the spot, in the middle of the lake with the storm brewing and all of their resources, all of their pulling to get to the other side. It will not rescue them. And in fact, they are in great danger of going down. And the question then begins to come to their mind, how are we going to be saved? How are we going to be delivered? How are we going to be rescued from our peril and our danger? Then all of a sudden, they see Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they're frightened by the storm, but they're far more frightened by Jesus. Jesus coming in his power and walking across the sea, and all of the overwhelmed emotion of the day comes out at this point. Their inability, their inadequacy, the gift of grace that God has already given through Jesus, and now the storm and the strange appearance of Jesus, what does it all mean? How will they be rescued? How can they risk themselves by trusting that Jesus, and then Jesus speaks the word? It is I. Do not be afraid. And what Jesus literally says there in verse 20, Greek is ego of me. I am. I am that I am. That's why you should not, must not be afraid. Don't you see? The answer to the deepest questions we have about life in this world, the deepest questions that we have about the life of the world to come, they're answered right here. Let me ask those questions again. How in the world can we entrust ourselves to another? How can we simply set aside our doing when the demands of life and the demands of the law are shouting to us to comply? How can we rest and receive Jesus' word of promise and so receive Jesus himself? How can we risk ourselves in this way? We can do so. We can trust Jesus. We can trust his word of promise. We can trust his gift of grace because Jesus is more than the prophet and he's more than a king. He is God. God himself, the only God there is from eternity past in eternal relationship with the Father and the Spirit. But now in time, the word became flesh. He is the God who dispels and soothes all of our sorrows and all of our fears. He's the only lover of our souls. He's the bread from heaven who satisfies our hearts. And if you've been brought to the end of yourself, whether the events of your life or even this past week, where you've seen how inadequate and insufficient your resources truly are, all you need to do this morning is rest in him and receive him. Whether for the first time or the 10,000th time, receive his gift of grace to you. Rest upon his word of promise to you because Jesus stands ready to save you. He is willing. He says to you, it is I. Don't be afraid. Doubt no more. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Guide us, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrims through this barren land. We are weak. You are mighty. Rescue us by your powerful hand. Lord, please, I pray for myself. I pray for my friends. 
as you bring us to the very end of ourselves over again by the demands of life and the demands of your law. Lord, please grant us grace to give up trying to somehow fix it. Grant us grace to be in the place of faith alone, of resting and receiving Jesus as he's offered to us over and over and over again in the gospel. And so, bread of heaven, feed us till we want no more. You are our only hope for this life and the life to come, our only comfort in life and in death. Indeed, Lord, do your good work in our hearts this morning, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymnals. Let's turn to